This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by a Mequi Quiet Lodge. A Mequi Quiet Lodge. Clean rooms and church service on Sundays. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. This week, we are wrapping up the Exorcist franchise until they come out with another sequel in the next year sometime, I think, right? I think so. With 1990's The Exorcist 3 and 2005's Dominion, prequel to The Exorcist. But before we get to the movies, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Horror trivia. Give me what you got. Name three ways in which Michael Myers has been killed. Okay. Uh, he's been burned alive. Which one was that? The 2018 version. Even though we know for a fact he comes back, yeah. Well, you could say that about all of them. Yes, that's true. Uh, he gets gunned down by the police. Is that two? That's four. Hmm. Um, how does he die in two? Because one, he gets shot and... But he's gone. But he's gone. So that doesn't really count. Yeah, I would say no, that doesn't count. But how does he die in two? The 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 whole place explodes and then doesn't he like walk out of it? Or does he collapse right there? I'll say he was in an exploding hospital. What do they have there? Shot and in parentheses a bunch of times. Uh-huh. Burned in a hospital fire. There you go. Decapitated by an axe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's in... Uh, what's the one before H2O? Or is it H2O? Is that how H2O ends? I have no idea. I think it's how H2O ends, and then we find out in the one after that, where they kill off Jamie Lee Curtis, like in the very beginning... That she really killed, like, the ambulance driver with tape over his mouth or something like that so he couldn't scream. And she chopped off his head. Mm. And I guess she never knew. Nobody ever found out. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, he's died a bunch. But yeah, if you can argue that him getting shot in the first one doesn't count because he gets up and walks away, then, like, how about the fact that it wasn't actually him that got his head chopped off? <laughs> All right, Kelsey. The serial killer in The Exorcist 3 is based off a real-life serial killer. Can you name both? The one in the movie is the Gemini killer. Uh-huh. I assume the one that it's based on is the Zodiac killer. That is correct. Imagine that. that. <laughs> right? <laughs> that brings us right into our first movie, 1990s The Exorcist 3. Written and directed by William Peter Blatty, based on the novel Legion that he wrote shortly after The Exorcist. He wrote the original novel that the first movie was based on. Starring George C. Scott, Ed Flanders, Brad Dourif, and Jason Miller. 
What is The Exorcist 3 about? The spirit of a serial killer inhabits the body of Father Karras after he falls down the stairs at the end of The First Exorcist, and he brings that body back to life to commit more murders. Yeah. Uh, this is another movie that was had to be reshot because at first they wanted more people from the original and they had like nobody from the original, which is crazy because even The Exorcist 2 had people from the original. This one had nobody. And according apparently to Brad Dourif, Jason Miller, the guy who played Karis in the first movie, had become such an alcoholic that he just couldn't even memorize his lines. And for things like long monologues and stuff like that, he just couldn't do it. And so they hired Brad Dourif. And then after filming, Morgan Creek came back and said, hey, we got Jason Miller. We want you to refilm everything. And William Peter Blatty was like, I really like Brad Dourif. Who, for those of you that don't know, he's Wormtongue in Lord of the Rings. He is Chucky in the Child's Play series. Been around for a very long time. And so he was able to reach a compromise that he would, in fact, refilm all the Brad Dourif stuff with Jason Miller, but he would intercut the two. The movie is available with subscriptions to Prime, Fubo, and Hoopla, with ads on Peacock, Voodoo, Verve, and Plex. You can rent it for $4 on Apple, Amazon, and Voodoo, $5 on Fandango Now. You can buy it for $10 on Amazon and Voodoo, or $13 on Apple and Fandango Now. Should people watch The Exorcist Part 3? I would say yes, but... Yes, but... Go in with the knowledge that it is quite long. Yeah. And it is certainly slow. Like, I think the movie is great, but not a lot of stuff happens in it, and it is long. Here's how you can think about it. If you're a longtime listener of the show, you know I like movies that have patience and also that are a little bit weird. I love how weird this movie is. Yes, it's very weird. (laughs) If you agree with me whenever I'm pointing that out, that, oh, man, the director, the cinematographer, the actors, they had just such patience and I really appreciate the slow simmering boil of tension. If you agree with me when I say stuff like that, I think you will like this movie. If you're like, oh God, it's so boring, then no, you won't like this movie. I think that's like the, this this movie was made more for me than it was for Kelsey. But even Kelsey thinks you should watch it. But you just have to have the knowledge that you might find it boring. Yes. Yeah. One point of clarity, we did watch the theatrical cut and not the director's cut. Apparently, a lot of the old footage was lost on the original film, and they found it on VHS, and Shout Factory, I think it was, cleaned that up and re-released it just like two years ago or something like that on Blu-ray as like a special feature for the theatrical cut. We watched the theatrical cut, so we'll be talking about that There are a few differences between the two. I'll get into that later. You can take our advice or leave it. When we get back, we will talk about 1990s The Exorcist 3. 17 years ago, an extraordinary motion picture terrified us with a story of a little girl possessed by Satan. 
On August 17th, the creator of the original Exorcist brings you fear beyond your darkest nightmares because the priest who saved you is now the greatest evil of all. George C. Scott in William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist 3, rated R. All right, Kelsey, get us started. How does The Exorcist 3 begin? It lets us know that this takes place in Georgetown. 1990. Yes. It shows us some rowers and the priest. What is his name? Father Dyer. Father Dyer. Played by... Ed Flanders. Don't we know him? He was in The Ninth Configuration, which is another William Peter Blatty movie. But maybe not. He was in St. Elsewhere, if you watched any of that. Hmm. No. But he is not the same actor as the original. If you remember, Father Dyer was the sort of younger, handsome actor, younger, handsome priest that was friends with Reagan's mom. Oh. Yeah, he's the one who is in their home and who sees this stuff going on at the party when she urinates on the floor and... He gets Father Karras. He's friends with Father Karras. He finds the body. And the way the first exorcist ended, it's Father Dyer and Kinderman going off to go see a movie. Father Dyer. You go to films? Sure. Well, I got passes, you know. In fact, I got a pass to the crest tomorrow night. Would you like to go? What's playing? Wuthering Heights. Who's in it? Heathcliff, Jackie Gleason, and in the role of Catherine Earnshaw, Lucille Ball. I've seen it. Another one. And they do this every year. This is like a ritual, and they have since then. Cheer them both up. Yes. Both of them act like they don't want to do it themselves, but they know it cheers the other up, so... They do it. It's kind of this sort of, uh, I wouldn't call it frenemies. They're just friends that are dicks to each other. Yes. Interestingly, I normally hate this whole like, oh, did you know that this person was in this movie? And la da 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 da. But this is actually really fucking cool. We talk about George C. Scott being Kinderman, the detective from the original movie. And in the last episode, I said the first time I ever really knew who George C. Scott was when I watched something was... 12 Angry Men, the made-for-TV one where he was juror number three. Juror number three in the original 12 Angry Men was played by Lee Cobb, who played Kinderman in the original Exorcist. That is interesting. And the 12 Angry Men from 97 was directed by William Friedkin, who directed the first Exorcist. Mm. So he's like, he flipped the two of them. That's pretty interesting. That's cool. Yeah. I know, I normally hate the whole like, oh, did you know this person and that person were in another movie together? But this one's a little bit more complex. You can't fight in here. This is the war room. Yes. He is also in Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> and has some of the best lines and very famously was told to act it as a drama. Isn't he the one that does, he falls and just does like a somersault and stands fall, right yes, back uh-huh, up? Yeah. <laughs> It acts like nothing happened. Ah, it's an obvious Tommy trick, Mr. President. We're wasting valuable time. Look at the big boy. They're getting ready to clobber us. We get the theme song for two seconds uh, yeah. while we watch the mist come come back. Like, 
obviously it was shot and then they and then they showed reversed it, reversed. it yeah yeah it leaving the stairwell and getting sucked up into nothingness yeah but the stairwell i mean they'll talk about how father karis fell down them but like they don't ever go there yeah he just walks by it at that point and there is a flashback you'll notice that they explicitly do not show the house this would have been a great opportunity to say that the exorcist part two never happened because the house is destroyed at the end of Exorcist Part 2, but they explicitly shoot it in a way that the house is never seen. Mm. Of course, we also know, if you listen to our Exorcist episode, that there was a lot of extra building that had to be done to that house to make it work the way that they wanted. They added new rooms on and everything over that stairwell, so they would have had to do all that again just to see it the one time. Not worth it. Not worth it. So there is a great wind that blows open the doors of a church uh, oh, and open up the eyes of my Jesus. My God, I wrote down the Jesus statue opened its fucking eyes. Yes. It's a little silly, but also a, a little disconcerting. Like there's something uncomfortable about it. There's a lot of very strange things that happen in this movie. Yeah. I will say the dialogue feels very much like a... Mad Men. Hannibal or Mad Men or Leftovers. These are shows that I love. Leftovers and Hannibal are two of my favorite shows on the most slept on television. Amazing television. But they have this dialogue that tends to be very weird and abstract and people say bizarre things to each other that's what this is like but in 1990 maybe you should go home and rest i can't go home why the carp you know i thought you said my wife's mother is visiting father and tuesday night she's cooking as a carp it's a tasty fish i i have nothing against it but because it's supposedly filled with impurities, she buys it live. And for three days, it's been swimming up and down in my bathtub. Up and down. And I hate it. They did that in in Mad Men, too. And nobody else... That's what I'm saying. Mad Men was really insanely popular. Like, we, we were constantly just like, did you not notice the weird thing that he did? And people <laughs> yeah. are just like, eh, whatever. I'm like, no. That's why I throw it in with the leftovers and Hannibal but as having that weird nobody, dialogue. It didn't bother anybody. <laughs> but I, really... It's something I absolutely love. But you're right. It's weird that it was very mainstream and nobody talked about how weird it was <laughs> they would just have bizarre conversations out of fucking nowhere that had nothing to do with what was going on in the show someone drove a riding lawnmower over somebody else's foot in an office building <laughs> that happened that did happen Mad Men's a great show <laughs> anyway this priest will explain that he has dreams of a rose and falling down steps yeah we get to see his dreams a couple of times in this. But I can't really tell whose dream it's supposed to be. I is think it, it's supposed to be his. Is it the priest? Yes, because it happens as he, like, especially when he's about to die, spoilers, uh, he has that dream about death where he sees Patrick Ewing, the angel of death. Like, it's very weird. <laughs> but doesn't George C. Scott kind of have the same I'm dreams? sure he does as he gets closer, too. 
I don't know. It's very hard to tell whose dreams we're watching when they happen, and it's kind of hard to tell. Like, sometimes we'll hear people say things, like priest, right? And you know in that moment, okay, that's the devil speaking. But there's other times where it's like, wasn't that George C. Scott's voice? Like, yeah. they say things and you don't know, was that real or was that a dream? And they 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 intersplice dreams without giving you any really real indication that somebody was dreaming. Mm-hmm. But it's very obvious that it's a dream because just bizarre shit happens. So it's a very interesting movie, and I do like that about it. Yeah. It's funny because when I say that it's boring, what I mean by boring is that there are long stretches where they just have very long conversations. Now, when he's talking to the Gemini killer, that's all very interesting. That is a very long scene. It's like over 10 minutes long. And and I'm fine with it, that. It's just enrapturing. But there's other long scenes where he's just having conversations with people and you're just like, why is this conversation still going on? says the weirdest things. And George C. Scott does a lot of yelling in this movie, which I know. That, which like, is very George C. Scott. That's yeah. part of his acting, but it seems out of place in this film. Normally his characters get angry very easily, and I feel like... I feel like Scott just kind of turned this character into a character that gets angry. Easily. Well, he would have he would be calm and biting throughout most of the movie, and then he would have moments of small explosions. <laughs> I thought you told me there's nothing really wrong with you. There isn't. My brother Eddie had these same stupid symptoms for years. Your brother Eddie died at the age of thirty. So what? He got killed in Vietnam. There could have been some connection. A connection? Are you sure this isn't serious, Joe? Well, with Eddie, there was... You shut up about Eddie! With my brother, it was nerves. You make a lot of people nervous. Only sinners. Everybody! Is everything all right in here, guys? We're fine! But I don't think that worked for the character. The way he described it in The Exorcist, Out of Shadows, which is a book by Bob McCabe, he said that it is a horror film and much more. It's a real drama, intricately crafted with offbeat, interesting characters, and that's what makes it genuinely frightening. Yes, I would say it has offbeat, interesting characters, and it's one of the things that is most endearing about it in my mind. But yes, yeah, so the priest explains that he's going to see It's a Wonderful Life with George C. Scott. They do it every year, the day that Father Karras died. But he does not like to talk about Father Karras. He gets very uncomfortable when he talks about it. Uh-huh. Because, probably because he feels responsible. Mm-hmm. George C. Scott will be introduced here with, I think this is the murder of the black boy, right? Yes, there is a young black boy who's like 12 or something at this point. I can't remember exactly. And he had his head cut off and he was crucified on some rowing oars. And what George C. Scott does, he knows this boy. He was in, like, the Young Policeman's Club or whatever it is that they have there. And he was very fond of him. And Explain how he's connected. His What we find out later is that this little boy's mother is the audio technician who was able to identify the tongues that Reagan was speaking in the first movie, that it was just English played backwards. And... That's how she's connected to the Reagan possession. Yeah, everything is somehow connected to the Reagan situation. There's going to be a priest that dies later who was the one that authorized the exorcism or 
authorized Karis to look in on it, to investigate it. There is Father Dyer himself, who is obviously closely connected. So yes, everyone is really closely connected to this. And this killer is very, very cruel. He does terrible, torturous things. And what we will find out later is that all of his victims are slowly strangled to death. They're not killed by the things he does to them. Yeah. They're slowly strangled to death because he injects them with this stuff that makes it so that they can't move. Yeah. Um, but they can feel everything. Yeah. It's a paralytic. And, and they're alive long enough to just suffocate slowly. And that's what happened to this little boy. We also see that Kinderman looks at both hands, and we don't know why yet. He's going to say the Gemini killer is back, and everyone's going to be like, no, the Gemini killer is dead. The Gemini killer is a serial killer akin to the Zodiac who was caught and was sent to the electric chair 15 years ago. Interestingly, though, around the same time that Karis jumped out the window. Yes, that Father Karras fell down the steps. Take me! Yes. <laughs> he, George C. Scott, does a lot of very interesting things with his acting. I love all the little touches. Um, at one point, he whispers, we are abandoned to, like, nobody in particular, just kind of talking to himself, but he says it out loud in front of people. And I kind of like that about him. He's a very different character. He's very poetic. Yes. And he's very competent, too. We get weird shots in between shots where it's like, oh, there's Brad Dourif just saying a random ass line. Mm. And then we cut away from it and don't talk about it again. There's a lot of random stuff like that I wrote down. I cannot tell what is real and what's not. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts about that? About those weird shots? No, think I think it's kind really of cool. Happening? I think the thing about exorcisms is that exorcisms come from possessions, right? It's the solution to a possession and a possession is influence. And there's a lot of influence happening in these movies. And I think just weird shit happening and not knowing where it's coming from, but making you feel a certain way is important. So I think this movie doing that as well, it plays into that. So then we get to meet that priest who will be killed. The one that, I guess, said, yeah, go ahead and do the exorcism. Yes. Which I thought you had to go somewhere higher than that. I thought you A bishop has to bishop. approve it. I don't think he gave him the sign off. We, we can put the line here, but there's another priest that talks about, oh, yeah, there is the connection to the Reagan possession and talks about how he approved the investigation or something like that. And Father Canavan? Canavan had my job back then. He gave Damien permission to investigate the case. So his death is very interesting. Uh, he is in a confessional. We see this old woman. Now, when you first see this, it, it's again, it feels like... Oh, it oh, doesn't make any sense. Yeah. At first, you're just like, this is so weird. They're just going to do weird shit like this. This will become intelligible. Yeah. It, it, at first, I just thought it was Brad Dorif doing a voice and maybe, you know, of the voice of an old woman... And maybe, you know, when we saw her at one point, maybe it's just the priest seeing things because that's not uncommon. But no, it really is an old woman. She confesses to murder and then laughs. And then we don't see her kill him. But the next shot is a woman screaming. Uh-huh. 
and we're told that he's dead. Yep. <laughs> so I guess that happened. And I wrote down, God, these segues are so strange. They are. And kind of jarring. And I guess that's probably what they were going for. Mm-hmm. But it it doesn't it doesn't feel like jarring in a scary way. It's just like, what just happened? <laughs> yeah. Well, again, this movie is a movie with a lot of patience. So then when it like that between scenes, it wakes you up. While we're at the cop station and he's learning about what happened to the little boy, how awful it was. Oh, like, he learns about that in the confessional. His officer comes and sits in the other side of the booth and they talk through the window. Well, whatever. We're somewhere. We're either at the cop station or we're at the morgue or we're at the hospital or something. There's like a nurse just wandering through the hallways, like waving her arms about. And it is so strange. And I'm just like, what the fuck is that? And I don't they, they, nothing. That at all. Yeah, because it just happens in the background. <laughs> it doesn't, nothing I'd goes have to get with a look it. at it. It's weird. Then we meet the nurse who is taking care of, so this must be at the hospital. We meet the nurse who is taking care of the priest. Why is he in the hospital? What happened to him? Father Dyer. Why is he? He doesn't explicitly say. They don't tell us. Yeah, but he's dying. And the nurse. Why do we know her? Which nurse? The one. The young one or the weird one? The one that he has the several conversations with. That's Nurse X, uh, along with Patient X, uh, because they don't explicitly ever get any names. That is Vivica Linfors, who was Aunt Bedelia in Creepshow. The, the the segment with the cake. Oh. Oh. Okay. That can't be all we know her from. She was also in the Stargate movie. I mean, no. She was she was born in 1920. She was in a lot of old movies. She has 150 credits. Okay. I've definitely seen her before. She was in the Errol Flynn Don Juan movie. Okay. <laughs> I'm just saying a lot of movies. Oh, you mean that's like a long time ago. Yeah. She was working that with That was Errol 1948. Flynn. Yeah. Got it. Okay. George C. Scott and the priest are very cute together. They have a back and forth banter, which is a lot of fun. But then we have another screaming nurse. What is she screaming about this time? Who stuck this guy? I wrote down, oh, there's another screaming nurse. This is one weird ass movie. (laughs) And then I wrote, oh shit, the statue's head is gone. Yes, so this is when Kinderman is leaving the hospital. After he just had this banter with Father Dyer, and he's waiting for the elevator, and when he enters the elevator and moves out of the way, we can see behind them, because this is like a Catholic hospital, there is a a statue of a saint or an angel or something, and its head is missing. Oh yeah, we didn't say that about the young boy, is his head was replaced with the head of Jesus from the crucifix at the nearby church. He's doing further and further investigation, and he thinks that the fingerprints are going to match. Oh, yeah. So the fingerprints, this is from the confessional. He's suggesting that the only way to close it from that side and leave the dude inside, because they know the door that the section that the priest is in wasn't opened until he was discovered. But the sliding door for the opening between the two sections was closed. And the only way to close it all the way is to reach in from the other side and grab the knob and close it part way. And then put your fingers on the door to push it, slide it the rest of the way. And so the killer's fingerprints will be there and you will find that they match the Gemini's or whatever. 
and they're like, yeah, no, there were fingerprints, but they're not the Gemini's. Nope. They're some weird old ladies. <laughs> they don't know who it belongs to. Yeah, but they point. find out. Yes. We get a bizarre dream of heaven. Yes. From George C. Scott's perspective. Yes, because George C. Scott's walking around, but he meets Father Dyer, who has the same. So he meets the young boy, and we see that he has his head, like, stitched back on. Uh, he also meets Father Dyer, who's, like, playing chess or something, and his head is stitched back on, and we don't know that Father Dyer is dead yet. We also meet, like I said, Patrick Ewing as the Angel of Death. There is a blind Samuel L. Jackson who doesn't even get a voiced yes. line in a movie. His line is dubbed. The living are deaf. It's a very weird scene. It's very strange, but I liked it a lot. Yeah. But I wrote down... Sorry, your friend is dead. And then, oh, his friend is dead. Yep. I called it. That is exactly what happened. He was exsanguinated. He had all the blood removed from his body and then his head removed. What movie is that in? Where they keep using that word. And There's like a kid who yeah, says we exsanguination. Like, There's no kid a- Wait, it's in, is in X-Files. <laughs> is in the X-Files. With the with all the little girl twins that are like super smart, where Eve Six comes from, all the Eves. Oh, yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Anyway. And he'll find out later. So he shows up and he's walking slowly, and everyone is giving him a wide berth, Kinderman. Because they know his good friend is dead and was murdered. And so they walk in and the camera guy that's t- that's documenting the crime scene is still taking pictures. And one of the uh, detectives has to, like, hit him to get him to stop. Like, Kinderman's here, man. Mm-hmm. And they explain the situation to him. Every drop of his blood was put in these specimen jars. You know, like you might pee in. And then the only other blood that they found anywhere was in the writing on the wall. And he's like, what writing? And they pull down this evidence cover thing. And it says, it's a wonderful life with two L's and wonderful. Which is how the Gemini killer used to spell. Whenever he wrote letters, whenever a word ended in L, he put two L's. He also checks the hands. And this is when he's like, the Gemini killer is absolutely back. Uh, and he kind of takes over the hospital at this point, and up, it upsets everyone that he's even there. Because he's like, something's going on, the Gemini killer is doing shit. When the administrator comes in and is like, what the fuck are you doing? He gets into an argument with Kinderman. Kinderman has to explain to all of them there, including the head doctor, who has a role to play later, that what they put in the papers about... The Gemini killer's M.O. was fake because they needed to weed out all the people who were calling in claiming to be the killer. So a lot of details were real, just enough. So so if anybody knew anything, they could provide a tip, but not it included details that were untrue. Like, for instance, uh, he didn't cut off a pinky finger, a ring finger, whatever. It was the index finger on the other hand. And he did this thing to the to one of the, the Gemini symbol on the hand without the finger being cut off and things like that. And all of these kills that are happening right now are all happening the way the Gemini killer actually did it. So it can't just be a copycat who read about it in the newspaper. So George C. Scott sits down with the nurse who is giving him major attitude. For nurse X reason. really does not like him. And she explains that... She found one of the patients totally knocked out. Yeah, because she was the one who found Father Dyer. She went and saw him at five in the morning. 
and then was taking care of something else, and then came back at six and he was dead. And Kinderman asks, and you didn't see anybody in between? He's like, yeah, no, I saw this one patient. And it's like, well, what about that? Oh, she was passed out on the floor. So he has to go and interview this woman. Who is, I forget how they define it. Do they say semi-catatonic? It's she's occasionally completely catatonic. Yes. And sometimes she's lucid, but she still doesn't talk much. And they have this interesting conversation. Is, are you the radio repair man? I knew you weren't a radio repair man. That is a phone. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good. But he realizes, well, I'm not going to get anywhere with this woman. But it's weird, because don't they find her fingerprints somewhere? Oh, on the... On, on the, the confessional booth, right? No. Oh, no, they were on one. the jars. They're yes. on the jars. Yeah. And they're like, why the hell were you in here? And she can't explain why she's in there, because she's catatonic. We don't know this yet, but these are two different women. Two different old women. Gemini Killer says to the camera, I was only 21 when I died, and that's it. Uh-huh. Let's move on to the next thing. Death be not proud. Though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, thou art not so. Though soonest our best men with thee go, rest of their bones and souls delivery. But those thou dost thinkest thou dost overthrow, die not poor death. Nor canst thou kill me. I was only 21 when I died. George C. Scott is sitting down with a different priest. And they're having a very strange conversation and... Time stops, and the priest doesn't seem to notice. Yeah, and, and Kinderman gets up and leaves, and all the lights go out. And the door opens, and he hears voices, uh-huh. and things are, like, moving around in the room. He sees a statue with a really creepy-ass face. Oh, there's, like, a Joker statue at some point. I don't know if this is it. That's what I, a, yeah, a va- yeah. I wrote, a vampire Joker holding a knife. Uh-huh. <laughs> And he sees somebody in there. I wrote down, who the hell was that? Some lady shows up and and gives Kinderman the speech for this other priest that he's going to be giving in, on Sunday or whatever and hands it to him, but scares him when she comes out yes, of nowhere. Yes, that's right. And that's when he finds out about how the boy the was related. Yes. Joe and Damien Karras were very close. Yes, I know. Joe is also a friend of the McNeil's. And Father Canavan? Canavan had my job back then. He gave Damien permission to investigate the case. That leaves us with the Kintry boy, Father. Does it? Damien gave our School of Linguistics a tape he wanted them to analyze for him. The voice of a McNeil kid. Supposedly possessed. He wanted to find out if the sounds on the tape were a language or just a lot of gibberish. He was looking for proof the McNeil kid was speaking in a language she couldn't possibly have known. And was she? No. The tape was really English in reverse, but the expert who figured that out was Kendry's mother. We see another Jesus figure crying blood Mm -hmm. at some point. Then George C. Scott goes to see the head doctor at the hospital 
that his friend was at. Is this a scene where he had been rehearsing what he was going to say? Yes, who has been rehearsing his story. Mm -hmm. We don't find out why until way later. And at the time, it seems like that's just a weird thing that they're just not going to bring up either. But no, they do. Yeah, it's it's just a little bit of character stuff. He's really nervous and he knew he was going to blow this detective's mind, this lieutenant's mind, Lieutenant Kinderman. Uh, So he just needed to rehearse it. But yeah, he brings Kinderman in to tell him there was a man 15 years ago that was found on the banks of the river and he had complete amnesia. He would have like bouts of violence or something like that. So they needed to lock him up and put him in isolation. And he's been in isolation ever since. And so Kinderman goes into this wing of the hospital that's really, really locked down, which is why they're like, well, couldn't it have been one of these people? It's like, no, nobody in here can get out. And they explain the process as to why that is. To get out. You punch a four-digit combination that sends a signal out to the control booth. The inner door opens. The control booth operator visually checks through the one-way glass. And every day, there's a new combination. And he goes into the room with this patient X, and then he leaves, and he is staggered. He is shocked. Because it's Karis. It's Karis. Didn't fucking Karis die? And see how cool that is? And yeah. if he didn't have it be Karis, that wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Apparently there is unfilmed things here. Or they were part of the director's cut or something. This is where it gets fuzzy for me. I don't know all the, the differences explicitly. Because so I think the idea that it was Karis might have been in the original. Or it might not. Or it might have been before the reshoots. Or I don't know. There is extra content, I think, in the novel Legion where they exhume Karis's body to be like, um, Karis died and it was somebody else, like a, like a cop or somebody else who had disappeared 15 years ago was actually the one in the casket and who was buried. And Father Karis just wound up unidentified and with amnesia and getting locked up. So that's a little bit of a backstory that you don't get in this version of the movie. Like, how could it be him? The movie's like, it doesn't matter. It is him. This is that long scene we were talking about, and it's very well done. Yeah. Um, It comes a little bit after this, but yeah. It's interesting because we saw this side by side, the scene. Yeah, you can see that on YouTube. A different version with just Brad Dourif. The Legion cut. I think both are very good. I think both are different, and I was saying this to Chris earlier about something entirely different. Tone matters. Yeah. A lot can be lost in a performance based on tone, or you can simply change a lot based on tone. I think that each version of the scene does it very differently and communicates something very, very different. And I with like, a lot of the same dialogue too. Yeah, same, yeah this is to your dialogue. point. It's all like tone and stuff, and there and there's more of a oneer in the Legion version where there's fewer cuts. I think I prefer the one in the theatrical. I cut. think I do too, where you actually get Jason Miller. Yeah, I like the dichotomy between him and Brad Dorif. And to be clear, these are. Two actors playing the same physical person and the the scene will cut between the two of them cleanly. Like you don't see a transition or anything like that. I liked it. Yeah. Because he is the Gemini killer part of the soul. I liked Brad Dourif's performance of it in the, in the director's cut. 
but I preferred it in the theatrical cut because he's more, he feels more like he's toying with George C. Scott in the theatrical cut. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the Legion cut, it does feel more like a, a more honest performance. Like if it really was the Gemini killer, then that might be what the Gemini killer really would do. Uh Uh-huh. If he was being totally honest and frank and open with this guy. But why the fuck would he be honest and open and frank with this guy? It makes more sense that the Gemini killer would have fun with toying with him. Yeah, it does. So while I think both performances are great, I actually think that the one that we saw in the film was better. I agree. I think you're absolutely right. Really? Yeah. And I think that Brad Dorif almost seems angrier in the theatrical cut Mm -hmm. you know and that anger is used to spur on george c scott yeah whereas again in the legion one even though it's a great performance it feels more like if you it feels like what would have happened on the show mindhunter once they've already been caught yeah uh and then they just let everything out yeah yeah, once they can't do anything else Uh uh-huh that would be a real conversation. Yeah. But that's not what's happening here. This guy, it doesn't matter that he's in a straitjacket. He, nothing keeps him inside these walls. So why would he be open and honest with him? It's too bad about poor Father Dyer. I killed him, you know. An interesting problem. But finally... It worked. First, a bit of the old succinylcholine to permit one to work without uh, annoying distractions. Then, a three-foot catheter threaded directly into the inferior vena cava. Or, superior vena cava. It's a matter of taste, I think, don't you? Then the tube moves through the vein under the crease of the arm, into the vein that leads directly into the heart, and then you just hold up the legs and you squeeze the blood manually into the tube from the arms and the legs. There's a little shaking and pounding at the end for the dregs. It isn't perfect. There's a little blood left, I'm afraid. But regardless, The overall effect is astonishing. And isn't that really what counts in the end? Yes, of course. Good showbiz, Lieutenant, the effect. And then off comes the head without spilling one single drop of blood. Now, I call that showmanship, Lieutenant. There's a Chucky reference here. Yes. Brad Dourif, so the Gemini killer, says it's child's play. Child's play, Lieutenant. And then we immediately get a shot of a kid in the hospital (laughs) who has like a striped shirt and has curly red hair. Yes. But that's silly because Chucky doesn't have curly hair. He's straight hair. Yes, but the red hair. (laughs) Yes. But I love the transition we get this introduction to Karis, and it's this evil version of Karis, and I love it. Yeah. And then- It's like he's possessed, and it's what you're expecting from an exorcist movie. Yes. 
And then George C. Scott says, the Gemini killer is dead. And I love that Brad Dorif angrily oh, is yeah. just like, I am not dead. I am alive. Incidentally, who is this Damien you mentioned? Don't you know? I know nothing. Except I must go on killing daddy. I must shame him. Are they calling these Gemini killings in the papers? You must get them to do that, Lieutenant. It's important. The Gemini is dead. No, I am not. I'm alive. I go on. I breathe. Look at me. Look at me. And tell me what you see. I see a man who looks like Damien Karras. And the, there's a really quick camera zoom and he leans forward and you just get his eyes and it's it's cool. I like it. And it's I cool. like that he's obviously trying to scare George C. Scott. Uh-huh. No, I am right here. And that's terrifying. Yeah. And he tells him, you'd better tell the papers it's me or I will punish you. Yeah. Which he tries to do, uh-huh. but is unsuccessful at. Why does he want it to be, why does he, because I guess he wants fame? Because I guess that's what serial killers want? No, he wants to shame his father, who was a priest. Oh. Yeah, he says as much in the movie. He does? Yes. But wouldn't his father already be shamed? Well, we don't get that in this version. I can't remember if it was in the director's cut, if it's one of the things in the director's cut, but it's definitely in the book that the Gemini killer... Patient X dies, not because he gets shot, but because he just keels over as soon as his father, the asshole priest, dies in real life. It's like the spirit of the Gemini killer who was so motivated to ruin his father's life was finally released when his father died. Mm. There's nothing else he could do to torment him. Mm. That's why everyone who's killed has a name that starts with a K. Somewhere in their full name. They don't explain why in the movie. Yeah, they, they do. They just say that he does that. Oh, I thought that's because of his father. They, If they did, I missed it. Okay. The victim's name's always starting with K. Like Carl, his father. The famous evangelist whom he hated and wanted to shame. And whom he wanted to kill. And keep killing and killing. But the priest. Father Dyer. Joseph Dyer. Father Dyer's middle name was Kevin. Kevin. But this whole this whole monologue is brilliantly done. I think that Brad Dorf should be very proud of himself. Oh yeah. Like I said, I like it better in this one. So we find out that every time one of these murders happens, it couldn't possibly be Brad Dorf because he passes out. <laughs> yeah. Every time these murders happen. But you know what's really weird? Is his brain activity just goes crazy. Yeah, his brain activity is really po- really accelerated, but his body is completely shut down. Uh-huh. So if you haven't gathered, he's going and possessing other patients at this facility every time he goes to kill somebody. So that's who killed the priest in the confession. It is literally an old lady. Catatonic women. Yeah. Who just start walking, and then when they do their job, they just pass out. So why does he kill the nurse? I, I can't remember. The very fucking famous scene. The very famous scene. Is there any reason for it? The master is throwing me scrap from his table. A reward for faithful service. 
Something fun. Something random. Something my way. I can't remember what the logic... I was just too focused on the scene. Yes, and this scene, people are not lying to you when they tell you that this scene will go on for a very long time. Just and to get you comfortable. Exactly. It's meant to make you feel comfortable. The problem is, is that when you know what's coming. Oh, yeah. It ruins it, it when you know it's coming. totally ruins it. And It's still incredible, but yeah, it ruins it. We need it. to stop watching videos that say the top ten scariest moments. Yeah. Because this shit gets ruined for us. Um, So... It goes on for a very long time, and you're just sitting there like, come on, I know it's coming. Do it already. Yeah. And so she goes back and forth between this room and her st- and her station, and the cops come in at one point, but then they leave. And we haven't been talking about these shears that keep getting brought up. Yes. <laughs> that are used to, I guess, cut through bones. Cut off their heads. That's every time they get their heads cut off, it's using these shears. It's very famous. You want to describe it? Yeah, we're we're in the hall, and then she goes into a room and out of a room, and she hears a noise. She's talking to the police officers who are stationed there, and then when the police officer sits down, another police officer comes out and calls him in, and then you think something's going to happen then, but then the police officer comes back out, he grabs his stuff and he leaves, and you think something's going to happen then when this nurse, Nurse Keating, with a K by the way, walks into the room and then walks out perfectly fine, and then she closes the door. And then she turns and walks away, and as soon as she walks away, something comes right out of the room, despite the fact that the door is closed. And it's like a woman in a body bag or something like that, or so, or a cloak or something. She's wearing, like, one of those white nun outfits yeah, with, the, or with a long something. white nun The hat. habits, yeah, and, and holding the clippers up and chasing right after her, and you get a quick zoom, and then... Cut. Quick is the right word to use here. This is a blink and you'll miss it moment. Uh-huh. You look away from the screen for just that second and it's gone. And I get why you want to do that. I understand you've been building up to this moment. It is meant for the shock value and I'm fine with that. But don't do it so fast that half your audience is going to miss it. Well, to be fair, nobody's fucking missing it if they're watching the movie. <laughs> We're writing notes, and so oftentimes we're looking down at our screens. So I think 100% of the normal audience are going to see it. Nobody's going to miss it. We find out that she was slit down the middle, had her organs taken out, her body was refilled with rosaries, and then sewn back up. Uh Uh-huh. And that's because, we didn't mention this, uh, Brad Dorif explains that he's an artist, and he takes his work seriously. Uh Uh-huh. We also find out that the head doctor's dead, but that was not Brad Dourif. <laughs> no, he committed suicide. Do not blame me for that pathetic death. Because, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it doesn't make any sense. If he thinks of himself as an artist, why would he do something so simple? Yeah, uh-huh. Do we find out in the movie why he commits suicide? Does Brad Dorf tell him what yes, is that? Yes, he yeah. says, uh, he. I guess he couldn't handle it. I was going to have him do a bunch of tasks yeah. for me, and then I was going to kill him, but I guess he, he couldn't handle couldn't it. He just couldn't it, yeah. That's why he was practicing his speech, because he wanted to get it right and omit any details of his own responsibility. Yeah, because Brad Dorf explained, I will punish you and I will do all these things to you. Uh-huh. And that's kind of what his plan is for George C. Scott. But George C. Scott luckily figures it out on, in time. 
Yes, so tell us about that. How is he going to be punished? Well, he's going to go after his daughter. Yeah, who we see briefly. She's an ice skater. She's out all the time. She really likes her boyfriend. And he doesn't get to see his daughter very much, but he loves her very much. Yes. He also, Brad Dwarf explains that Karis is in here with me. Yeah, all three of us are. His pain will never end. The master devised this pretty little scheme as a way of getting back, of creating a stumbling block, a scandal, a horror to the eyes of all men who seek faith, using the body of this saintly priest as an instrument of, well, you know my work. But the main thing is the torment of your friend, Father Karras, as he watches while I rip and cut and mutilate the innocent, his friends, and again, and again, and on and on. He is inside with us. He will never get away. His pain won't end. Oh, gracious me. Was I raving? So George C. Scott, I think, is just losing it. He's going crazy. He's getting upset. And he wa- he think he's wandering around in the hospital. And this is when a great thing happened that you've never heard about. Yeah. Of all the things that happened in this movie, you don't hear about this one. And it's really cool. He goes in and he, like, tries to talk to the old ladies again to this, like, convalescent wing. And while he's there, up on the ceiling, and this is done well, one of the old ladies, like, smiles down at him and then crawls across the top. Yeah. And I had never seen that before. I was not expecting it. And it definitely made me jump. It was cool. Yeah. It was really cool. Especially when you realize that he is in a room full of old women who could be possessed to do this. Yes. Yes. And but this one just wants to get out without being seen so it can do something evil. Yeah. It was well done, whatever they did to make her up on the ceiling that looked real. Yeah. As opposed to the hyenas in Dominion. All the CG in Dominion. We'll talk about that. Somebody makes a phone call to his to George C. Scott's wife and tells her that a nurse is on the way to deliver a package. Who made that phone call? I don't know. Could it have been the doctor before he committed suicide? It's very confusing. I can't remember. I'm sure we know. Or it doesn't matter. It's just an old woman saying a nurse that made a call saying a nurse is on her way. And so this woman dresses up, this old woman dresses up as a nurse and gets in a car. Yes. And I forget how George C. Scott figures it out, but he gets in a police car and he races home. Uh huh. He gets home. Everything seems fine. I liked this. I thought this was very well done. Gets home. Thinks everything is fine. He's just like, okay, I guess I must have freaked out over nothing. And then his wife is like, what's up with this nurse lady? Why is she sitting in here acting all weird? She just got here and then she collapsed and asked when lunchtime was or whatever. Bedtime. When was bedtime going to be? And you're like, oh my God, she's been unpossessed. But 
George C. Scott's mother-in-law has been staying with them the entire time, and she's an old woman, too. Oh, my God, is she going to be possessed? And you're just, like, watching her. And they're, like, setting dinner, and he and he's looking at this nurse, and he's like, what the fuck is going on? And then all of a sudden, the nurse says to him, I was waiting for you to show up. Like, I wasn't trying to get any of this done before you got here. I was waiting for you because I wanted you to see this. Please help me. Is it bedtime? So is she staying for dinner or what? Catatonics are so easy to possess. I've been waiting for you, Lieutenant. I wanted you to see this. And then pulls out the shears, opens them up, puts them around his daughter's neck, and then his mother-in-law grabs her by her hair and just yanks her away right as the shears are closing. Yes. And then he tackles this old woman and she throws him up against the wall and is like strangling him. But he's stopped. Morning! Yes. So, Father Morning, the in-house priest at this Catholic hospital has figured things out uh-huh. even though we have no idea who he is as a character. Morning is a character that was added in by Morgan Creek when they realized there is not a single exorcist in the entire plot of Legion. Yeah, so he's gonna go in and, and he, you know, this whole time, I guess he's been uh, watching from the wings. He's gonna go in and do a, perf- a fucking exorcism and the Gemini killers can be like, you won't win this time. So apparently he also has some history with this Father Morning guy. And Father Morning is not successful, but he does stop him from getting to kill Julie. That is why George Scott runs back to the hospital right after this morning character dies. Well, he collapses and we think he's dead, but he's not. All we saw from this character was an exorcism where a lot of shit flies around Oh, and then he rips himself off the ceiling and it peels off his skin and that was Mm -hmm. gruesome. Yes. But yes, this was something that was mandated by Morgan Creek and apparently... He, he got them to agree to do a test screening with his ending without the, any exorcisms. And he complains that it's like they got the worst audience they could possibly get. He called them Haitian zombies. You know, like the actual stories of zombies from Haiti. Not like, oh, a bunch of Haitians don't like my movie. Not like that. Hadians. We could certainly party with the Hadians. But he's like, yeah, no, the, it, it got shit reviews uh, at that screening because there was a bunch of people that didn't want to fucking be there anyway, and they knew that. They just wanted to give me, throw me a bone and say, we screened it and nobody liked it, so now we have to do our version. And as opposed to letting somebody else film that, he's like, well, if somebody's going to do it, it might as well be me. And he agreed to do the reshoots and add in the extra character and put in the exorcism and make the ending a little bit more action-packed. Although, the ultimate ending, I think, is what he was originally planning to film, which is when Kinderman shows up and ends up shooting Patient X. Uh, What happens in the final theatrical cut of the movie is that Morning and Kinderman are able to break through to Father Karras, and he's able to resurface and regain control, and as soon as he does... He tells Kinderman to shoot, shoot me now, do it now. And Kinderman does. Bill, now 
shoot now! Kill me now! You're taking out the part where Kinderman gets crucified on the wall. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a storm inside the inside the cell. Oh, the whole yeah, lightning strikes and the and the floor of the cell breaks away and then as if coming up from hell, Father Karis and the little boy on crucifixes of rowing oars and he are says, talking to him. He says, "Why God?" and Gemini Kilirka says, "You grow tiresome and foolish. He's not here." Which will be said in Dominion. Yes, about God not being here. But yeah, fight Davian as Morning <laughs> will shout out and then, uh huh, kill me now, take me. So keep in mind that that costs nearly $4 million to reshoot that. Just for that. Uh huh. For that magic trick. For the for the whole exorcist, exorcism scene, yeah, the whole exorcism scene Feels was like a magic four trick. million dollars falling out of flowing out of the hat. <laughs> so that's like the end of the movie. Yeah, kind of ends there. He shoots him in the head for good measure because he wasn't actually dead; he was just incapacitated. And then he he shoots him and he says something to him about like I don't know, loving him or forgiving him or whatever. We won. Free me. I think if this movie was just edited a little bit more, it would be great. I'm fine with the editing. I think there's a lot about this movie that I think is exactly right, and I totally understand why... The same things that I like are the things that you don't like, and there's no right or wrong about it. It's just what I'm into. I love the conversation between Dorif and Scott. Yeah. That scene is is gold. Some other scenes that were in the original Legion version, which, by the way, that's what it was going to be called, was Legion. It wasn't even going to be called The Exorcist 3. But then again, Morgan Creek demanded it. And then they that they insert this exorcism scene, and uh, apparently at one point, so says William Peter Blatty. No, it wasn't William Peter Blatty. It was one of the producers said that the studio admitted to him that after it opened, I think at number one in the first week, and then was going to be removed from theaters like two weeks later. It was underperforming at that point. That they had decided that the reason was is that it had The Exorcist in the title. This producer was like super pissed because they were fighting with William Peter Blatty to just call it Legion. And it just seems like Morgan Creek makes every wrong decision about The Exorcist every single fucking time. And when they try to correct their mistakes, they fuck it up too. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. This is what Brad Dourif said about it. He said the original version was a hell of a lot purer and I liked it much more. As it stands now, it's a mediocre film. There are parts that have no right to be there. As somebody that was involved in the making of the original, I've, I imagine it hurts, you know, that a lot of your scene gets taken out and replaced by somebody who, in your mind, is doing an inferior version just because he's an actor from the original movie. But, like, Kelsey and I both think that that version's better. The version with Jason Miller in it. Mm-hmm. So, Kelsey, what do you think The Exorcist 3 has on Rotten Tomatoes? I guess it's not very high. I guess this is not too low either. Uh, How about like a 57? 59. The Exorcist 3 is a talky literary sequel 
with some scary moments that rival anything from the original. I would agree with that. A Metacritic of 48, a cinema score of a C. Now, as a reminder, The Exorcist 1, when we reviewed it, had an 84, and we both gave it a 90. The Exorcist 2 had a 15. I matched that 15. You gave it a 5. <laughs> Do you think that 59 is overrated or underrated for The Exorcist 3? I'm going to say underrated. Okay, and what would you give it? give it a 77 oh okay i was gonna give it an 84 i think a good mid 80s is good for it because i absolutely loved it i really really did but i don't think it's perfect there are a lot of things that i would change but there's a lot that i was very very surprised by and didn't expect to be there all the purple prose that we get in it is uh really fascinating and I was enthralled the entire time. Why 77 from you? I thought it was very good. It just doesn't have watchability for me. For the same reasons that I like it. Yeah, I can understand that. All right. That is The Exorcist 3 from 1990. Before we get into our next movie, Kelsey, horror trivia. In what year was Jack Clayton's The Innocence released? Is it 61? Yes. It is? It is. Cool. Kelsey, why did Warner Brothers and Morgan Creek release two prequels to The Exorcist within a year of each other? Oh, (laughs) because the first one did really bad, right? Yeah. They didn't like the first one that was filmed, which is what we now know as Dominion, prequel to The Exorcist. So they gave it to Rennie Harlan who filmed Exorcist The Beginning. And then when that fucking bombed, they went back to Paul Schrader and said, hey, listen, you filmed all your shit. Go ahead and cut it together. Here's a couple thousand dollars. We're not going to support you in any way, but if you want to do it, feel free. And then they fucking undermined him at every turn with this, like really, really badly. So he had no money for special effects. (laughs) He had, yeah, right? At that point, he should have just said, fuck it, we're not having any special effects. Right. Yeah, because some of those things were, oof. Yeah, so they were going to put his version, they were going to cut it in-house and put that version on the DVD as a bonus feature for Exorcist the Beginning. But then when Exorcist the Beginning was released in theaters and it did so shitty, they're like, um, well, we already have it. We might as well release this to theaters. And it only, only released in like a hundred and something screens. It wasn't a very wide release. But they did give it to him to recut He was given $35,000 for visual effects and post-production. He was given no money for publicity, no money for for music. He couldn't ADR anything. The cinematographer couldn't be paid to do the color timing. So Schrader basically did did it himself with one of the producers, I think. And they just guessed at all the color timing stuff. They couldn't commission an original score, so they grabbed parts from... The beginning and parts from a metal band called Dog Fashion Disco, which apparently Schrader's son was a big fan of, and like pieced together this new thing. Uh, And then they released it the same weekend as episode three, Revenge of the Sith. So it's like they didn't want this to succeed. Yeah, they specifically wanted it to fail. Because they couldn't be wrong about how bad it was or something. 
They're like, fine, if you want to prove it, then go ahead. Here's your shot. And we're going to try to undermine you at every chance we get. The film is written by William Wisher and Caleb Carr. It's directed by Paul Schrader. It stars Stellan Skarsgård, Gabriel Mann, Clara Bellar, or Beller, and Billy Crawford. In addition to Stellan Skarsgård's Lancaster Marin, Major Granville, Jomo, Chuma, and Amekwi are all the same actors from Exorcist the Beginning. Amekwi's children, James and Joseph, are not. The Doctor is different. Also, she changes names. But... A lot of the plot of this movie is exactly the same as the beginning. Kelsey, can you tell us what happens? Can you tell us what it's about? Just give us a brief overview. They found some ruins, and I'm not really sure why they want Father Marin there. Well, because after what happened in Nazi Germany, or wherever they were, under Nazi rule, he kind of quit. He went on sabbatical and started doing archaeological work. Right. But that so now explain, he's in, he's a priest who is an archaeological that expert. Explain why they specifically want him. I think it's because he's already digging there. Okay. And the military shows up, and well, the church tries up, to take claim on. They it. show up because the other guy, yeah, wants them there because he has the backing of the church. Marin doesn't. Why does he want the government there? I don't know, they found a church, guys, and they're going to look into it. The church has been buried, and it's older than any church like this should be. If you listen to our beginning episode, a lot of this is the same exact plot. Yes. So we're not going to go through the plot of this one. If you're interested in that, listen to that episode on Exorcist the Beginning, because this is going to be kind of short. We're really going to be talking about the differences and what we liked and what we didn't like. One thing that they never get to is the source of this church, I don't think. They call the demon in here Satan, but they don't describe that this is the location where Satan fell to earth like they did in the beginning. Nope. Uh, I realize they just never got around to that. But a lot of the main plot beat stuff is exactly the same. So if you want to know that stuff, listen to that version. This one is just a much more toned down version of that. It's not as big and eventful. It's available with subscription or with ads on Fubo. You can rent it for $4 on most major services. You can buy it for $13 or $14 on those same services. Should people watch Dominion? If you've seen the other one, absolutely not. Do not watch this. Are are there scenes that are better in this than that are in the other one? Yeah. Let me ask you, if they hadn't seen either one, which should they see? This one. If you haven't seen either one and you'd like to see one of them, watch this one. That being said, the other one has more exciting things in it. Yeah. So if you thought the other one was long, <laughs> you're yeah, going like, to feel the same way about this one. Uh, this is like two hours long. And this one has even less going on in it. Uh-huh. Even less things. I mean, like not a lot, like things happen, but nothing like... There's more emotional and psychological stuff, but yes. not action stuff. Not no action, correct. Yeah. And so... And we really didn't like beginning, so... Yeah. But this one... Yeah, if I was to pick one, I would say this one. But I agree. If you saw beginning and you're like, oh, I, I was really excited for this. I thought, oh, beginning fucking sucked, but I was intrigued by a lot of the concepts. I would like to see what the original version that they thought was too boring was. And I wish I had seen this version first. That's the way I would describe it. But yeah, if you've seen Beginning, you don't need to see this. 
No. You can take our advice or leave it. When we get back, we will talk about 2005's Dominion prequel to The Exorcist. Okay, you know how I said that they gave Schrader no money for marketing? Yeah, there is no trailer for Dominion online other than a real crap trailer that for a full 30 seconds, it's just playing audio from the original Exorcist. (laughs) And then it's just nothing but flashes of shots and some text on the screen. So I'm absolutely not going to put it here. But hopefully this gives you a little bit of insight into how Morgan Creek and Warner Brothers treated Schrader and his movie. Anyway, here's Dominion. All right, we said we weren't going to go scene by scene on this one, so I'll just talk briefly about what happens in it. It's the same thing as Exorcist the Beginning, except Amequi's child is not the one that gets possessed. It's a new character called Cheche. Certain characters behave differently. We don't learn that this is the location where Satan fell to Earth. There isn't as much fighting, like the war scene, the battle scene at the end of beginning doesn't really happen in this one. The priest is a different actor. Yes, the young priest is a different actor. Is the doctor the same actress? No. No. Different name. Oh, not even the same character. Yeah, well, it's the same basic character, but different name. She doesn't get possessed or controlled. She acts a little weird at one point. Well, she, like, kind of gives in to the devil a little bit. Which, by the way, that's another thing. Is it the devil? Is it Pazuzu? Is it a different demon? Yeah, they they call him Satan, but they called him Satan in The Exorcist, too, and it wasn't Satan. So, we never find out definitively who it is. I mean, if it's supposed to be the prequel to The Exorcist, then you can assume that it's Pazuzu. And there is, there are several pictures of Pazuzu throughout, and it's real bad. The statue is underneath the church that is built on top of it to keep him down. But we don't actually hear that this is where the devil fell, fell to earth. And because the statue looks specifically like Pazuzu, I'm I'm here to believe that that's where Pazuzu was smote. Yeah, or this is just one example of an angel killing a demon the or church. a fallen angel and maybe all the them look like, maybe Pazuzu is one of Satan's followers and he was cast down with Satan like it could be a lot of things there's a lot that's not definitive here the church is much bigger this time yeah i like the church a lot in this one we get a whole devil talking to you uh, offering you shit scene yep that wasn't in the other other one was it I don't think so. I don't think so. That all seemed new. But, uh, I mean, effectively, it's the same storyline. Pretty much. There, There isn't a lot different when it comes to the plot, but how they accomplish it, there's a lot of differences. He's given the ability. It's so weird and stupid. Okay, so he walks in after the devil has, I guess, been working on the lady doctor and I guess offering her, like, I don't know, if you come to my side... If you don't, if you let me live, then I'll allow you to erase the bad things that happen in your life. 
But we see that that didn't do anything to her. And in fact, she's now acting like a crazy person, right? So it obviously didn't do shit. And she she's living in some weird fantasy world. And the devil even says that to him. He says, you ruined it. You ended it. And yeah, it's like, she was living in a place where those things didn't happen. Basically, when he says, yeah, I'll make it so they didn't happen. He's basically saying, I'll make it so you can forget. That's what she wants, really, is to forget. Yeah, but that's not really what he's doing here. It's not forgetting, it's rewriting your history. So the whole thing with the Nazi happens again in this movie. Except it's the first scene in this one. Yes. And and I will argue that it has a bigger impact on the plot. Rather than just motivation for Marin, it, it repeats again later on in the story. But so what he's given the opportunity to do is sacrifice himself because he asks him just, you know, kill me, take me instead. But that's not what the Nazi did in real life. Like, so, Oh, in, you'd like that, wouldn't you? You'd, you could be a martyr? Yes. So in this fantasy land, he gets to kill that Nazi, but then he gets killed and everyone else gets killed anyway. So I guess what he's offering him is just a glimpse into the fact that you don't need to feel guilty. That's exactly what it is. Because God would have had them all be killed anyway. And in fact, you actually saved more lives. Exactly. You but, did the right thing. But. According to Satan. <laughs> right. <laughs> but does any of that matter? Because you're not rewriting history. None of this is changing. Well, in this case, I don't think that's. He, he's offering him the same thing that he offered the woman. He's offering to take away his guilt. And he's trying to show him, you've been carrying around this guilt this entire time for pointing out people to be killed by the Nazis. But if you didn't do that, everyone would have died. Feel better. You did what you could. You laid down your life. But God decided to kill them anyway. Your guilt is gone. But... I mean, if we go back to the others, when they talk about, you know, making a sacrifice, even if it means you die, you do what Jesus would want you to do. And if you die, then great, you get to go to heaven. You should be prepared for that. So in God's view, maybe all of them dying would have been preferential. We don't know. But he does get to relive that moment later on when the... Major starts going a little bit crazy, Major Granville, and kills somebody because he wants information, and Marin just punches him, as opposed to, you know, oh, this option or that option, I'll start killing people unless you give me the information that I want, information which does not exist, who killed his soldiers, well, they did it themselves because they were possessed, but he doesn't want to believe that. Yeah, he doesn't and want to believe that. he's also probably possessed he's a little all, bit, yeah. too. He's definitely being influenced at this point. Uh, he's losing his mind. But Marin is like, wait a minute. I could just hit this guy. And yeah, it's violence, but it's going to prevent further violence. Is that good or is that bad? I don't know that ultimately the movie takes a side on that. But one thing that Marin does say, there's a pretty good line where he talks about how he survived the ordeal, he survived World War II, 
He survived but he's not that living. Yes, I survived it, but did I live? People make it sway over our lives for a time. But the ultimate power of faith lies in its ability to strengthen men. Not to conquer evil, but to survive it. You wrote that. I read it. Young man's theories. But you proved it. Well, I survived, if that's what you mean. But did I live? Not really. Not really. So, Kelsey, that's effectively, you know, the whole plot is the same thing as the beginning. What else would you like to talk about? Let's go through our notes. So the CG animals in this movie are terrible. Ooh, there are some real hyenas, I think they are. They use a lot of hyenas. We also see some snakes, and I think we see something else. Oh, yeah, their CG snakes are terrible. They are so bad. But again, he was given... 30 some odd thousand dollars right. to do the so, whole thing. So do something practical that costs you five bucks. It, yeah. It'll either look just as bad or it'll look even a little bit better. Yeah, it aged uh, terribly. <laughs> Again, it's Morgan Creek making a bad decision. This was basically a free, they had already cut their losses on this version of the film. So any money they made on it would have been effectively free. So why not just invest a little bit more into it and make it good? Mm hmm. At least $100,000. I mean, come on. <laughs> but there are some pretty cool effects. There is a slow-mo shot later on when the young priest is trying to baptize Cheche, who has been possessed. And he, like, swats at him and launches him backwards. And this priest will hit a statue and fall. But that him f- flying backwards in slow-mo is actually pretty slick. It's very it well cool. done. Yeah. It's it's interesting. There's also a fun dream sequence, although I don't remember anything that happened in it, but I liked it. Apparently, I wrote that down. One where he sees Pazuzu, like, flickering a lot, which was the lame part, but the rest of the dream was good. Cheche was at least an interesting character. Like, you actually felt bad for him. Yeah. Like, he's just this, he's just a deformed young man. Who never learned? I mean, he can he can barely speak. He, I mean, because he was cast out by his people. Yeah, they think that he is cursed. Yeah, he's deformed. He has a a lame leg and arm, and well, yeah, the arm is completely like the, the withered, withered. And, yeah, but the leg w- could have been okay. It's just that it got broken at some point, and it was. It mended wrong. Yes. So there's a scene where they actually fix the leg, and it's Ooh, really see, bad. You that's, see a that's, bone. That looks great. That looked real, and it felt real, yeah. and it was not fun to watch. No, it wasn't. But he ends up, like, healing really, really quickly, and they're like, oh, it's the work of God. But all the the, tri- the tribal people are like, "That's the. have you not noticed that the only person who's doing well right now is Cheche? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, that's that's another thing, is that a lot of bad things happen to Christians in this movie. I mean, because you have a Christian demon here who's totally fine with people practicing other religions. I don't give a shit. Uh, I want to punish the people who follow Christ. At the beginning, Amekwi and his two children are like the only Christian villagers that are there. And when the young priest, Father Francis, played by Gabriel Mann, tries to start like a Sunday school or something, a, a school, they're the only ones that are there. But later on, there's a there's a scene that's not in the beginning where 
after that woman is killed by Major Granville, all the kids of the village show up at this school. And he's like, oh, well, you know, I'm glad to see that more people are showing up. And then James and whatever the other kid's name is say they come to school because they think if they do not come, Jesus Christ might kill them, too. I didn't think I would see so many of you today. When you go home, you must remember to thank your families. Their families know no father. Their parents tell them they must not come. They say that Jesus Christ killed Felicity. Felicity? That was her name? They come to school because they think if they do not come, maybe Jesus Christ might kill them too. And it's fucked. And right after that, Jomo comes in. Father Francis freaks out and runs out to get help. And when he comes back, Jomo has killed almost every kid there saying that killing them is preferential to spreading Christianity. Yeah. Spreading Christianity. And then a asks Marin, like, is this what Jesus does to his followers? Is this what results from following Jesus Christ? Is this how he rewards us? And Marin's like, yeah, this father, is this how the almighty treats those who have kept faith with him? Yes. Yes, it is. Thinking back to the Nazi thing and that Marin's at like his lowest point at this part. It's not until he has to go up against this demon that he starts like regaining his faith. That's pretty fucked up. They think if they do not come, Jesus Christ might kill them too. Whew. There was a legitimate creepy scene with Cheche. Major Granville kind of goes crazy after he does what he does. Yes. Does he kill himself in the beginning? You mean in the first film? Uh, I don't know. I don't think so. He does here. He tells his sergeant major, tell Marin I know what he's going through or I know what he went through and that there's only one way out. And then he shoots himself in the head. And when he does that, there's a cut to Cheche. With a very creepy look on his face, Uh just kind of rising up from the bed. Yeah. So all these things happening, the woman being slaughtered by Major Granville, Major Granville killing himself, Jomo killing all the kids. There is a lot of tension going on and building up. And so it feels a little bit more motivated, I guess that there's going to be some kind of clash between the Brits and the natives, then we don't really get to see it. Yeah, it's building, it's building, and it's building. There is a little bit when there's he's a little bit, having yeah. his exorcism. Uh-huh. There's a little bit, but not much. I wrote down, you basically don't see the battle at all. Is it because we were inside the church and didn't see very much, or was it prevented from getting worse by the exorcism? I think the exorcism was both Hindering it and helping it. Yeah. Because it was the powers of good and evil Uh being fought against each other. There was a fun line when, uh, so Major Granville's, like, second in command or whatever. Yeah, the sergeant major. Sees him kill himself and delivers the message very, uh, very differently than how Uh Major gave it. Major said, tell him I know how it's been for him all these years. And that there's no other way out. Whereas when he get, tells it, he tells it very militarily. Like terse. Says he knows how it's been all these years, sir. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and Sergeant Major. Sir, I shall need you to give Mr. Merrin a message. Tell him 
Tell him I know now how it's been for him all these years. But tell him there's no way out. Other than... Stop! They asked me to give you a message before he shot himself. Said he understood what you were going through. And that this was the only way out. But he's like pissed. He doesn't like Marin. He doesn't like these natives. He's the one who's using a lot of derogatory terms to refer to them. Yes. And he tells him, you'd better tell the people to step lightly. Yes. Felt a lot very, of the fellas are on edge. Felt very Breaking Bad. Yeah. Tread uh-huh. lightly. Tread lightly. You mentioned that the church is bigger, or at least we get to see more of it in brighter light, too. So we get to see all the beautiful sculptures and artwork there's a bunch of like frescoes of showing the war in heaven and all of that. I loved all of I thought the church was much, much better in this version. I agree. Although how clean and perfect everything was on the inside yes. was stupid. It was sealed off, but there were like spiders and snakes and things like that. Like, why wasn't there signs that things were living there? Yes. And like certain things cobwebs. had dust on it and certain yeah. things were clean as a whistle. Uh-huh. It was Whoever did set on that movie should not be doing sets. Also, did the pr- the young priest die in the beginning? He kind of dies in this movie for no good reason. I feel like he did. Okay, it's I guess he's supposed to be a martyr, but like it seems like they could have saved him and then they just don't. Oh, there's that scene where he's strung up and shot with arrows or something like that. Yes, they find him. It, it, isn't it kind of like there's somebody in the in the Bible who dies like that? It, it's in a very specific position. He's oh, it's got in three. Carrie. It's the same dude that's that's in the 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 crucifix in in Carrie in the closet where it's not Jesus. It's actually that guy who's shot up with all the arrows and crucified. Yes. I can't remember who that I is. I can't remember his name either. But he could have lived, but then he doesn't. <laughs> Yeah, but he also said, like, he was attacked in the night, and I don't think he blames the villagers. No, he definitely blames Cheche. <laughs> yeah. Well, not Cheche, but the possessed Cheche. And that's very frustrating why the devil, I mean, I've said this in a lot of movies that deal with the devil. St. Sebastian, by the way, is the saint that was uh, killed with arrows. Thank you. Very frustrating in pretty much every movie where there's God versus the devil. The devil always seems to have power in God's house of worship, even though, according to the Bible, like, he shouldn't. He should not have any, like, powers in the in a house of worship, but he totally does. Well, you get, you're also bringing in some of our collective lore from everything we've ever seen or read. And and sometimes those things say that, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's true. There are declarations where they're like, you have no power here, but it's very obvious they do. So I wouldn't say definitively one way or the other there. But I can see what you're saying. Like, which is it? Yeah. Where does God have any power? Yes. I guess in exorcisms, he always wins. Yeah, and that's like it. Otherwise, he would never have stepped in. (laughs) That's part of the point of this movie, I think, is the power of the faithful and not necessarily what they're faithful in. It's very odd when they're having their big battle. At one point, he like spits at the priest and he has like bugs. Oh, yeah. He opens his mouth and oh. 
And yeah. The, yeah, and then like they turn into boils on his face, which will eventually like burst when he at the end of the exorcism. It's uh-huh. very strange. He gets fucked up. And that will spread even though there's no more bugs. It's very weird. And then he ha- permanently has like dead bugs on his lapel for a while. <laughs> it's I didn't get what He was didn't going have time on. to look in a mirror, Kelsey. It's that you are correct. He ends up I think he brings like Cheche out of it, you know, and like fight him Cheche or whatever and the devil says I will kill you both, which is when he uh, does his final, you know, I will oppose you, we exercise you, we cast you out. Yeah. And then the Cheche disappears and then in the next shot he's just there. And that was weird. Why did he disappear at all? He comes behind Marin. At that moment, like he appears behind Marin instead of in front of him. Does if, he? if that's the moment you're talking about, you I might not. I don't even... think so. I there think... is definitely a moment where that happens, where they're talking to him, and all of a sudden, well, we look he's... at we look at Marin and Cheche's behind him. I well, I don't know about that. I just I'm pretty sure that he defeats the devil inside him. Oh yes, no, you're right. Yes, that's at the very end. And he sort Cheche of like disappears. disappears. He fades out of existence. And then in the next shot, he's just he's there. back yes, there again. That definitely happens. Yes. What? Mm-hmm. Why? Yeah. Why did he disappear at all? It was an odd choice. It's like they needed to show that the demon had gone. I guess. But that that's a weird way to do it. It was a very strange choice. The head of the tribe tells this to the interpreter who tells the priest. He says, he wishes you strength and that the demon is now your enemy and will pursue you. Yeah. So that's, you know, leading into the exodus. But he won't get to him for a long ass time. Yeah. Like 50 years, 40 years? We didn't talk a lot about Chuma, the, the translator, guide character same actor right? same actor same character virtually nothing changes Good he's pretty him. uneventful it's just he's kind of the doer and the go-between and that's it like he doesn't have a very big plot purpose and then at the end, suddenly the major's second in command is like good friends with the priest and he's like they won't get a thing out of me and it's like wait what <laughs> anyone ask me about this place sir I didn't see a thing. They won't get anything out of me. Why are you suddenly friends? Yeah, that was really weird. It felt like a, hey, we've gone through battle together sort of thing. But it's like, what would he be afraid of you telling anybody? Yeah, you know. Go ahead and tell him. I don't give a shit. (laughs) I didn't do anything wrong. I guess maybe it should have been played in the way that, like, I won't tell them anything. Not like a, don't worry, I won't tell them anything. Because I don't think Marin's worried about it. (laughs) Although he does try to get back in the good graces of the church. So maybe just don't tell them anything controversial happened. Maybe that's it. I have no idea. I think the Sergeant Major would be more concerned about not telling anybody anything about Major Granville. And what he did. And that's more self-serving than anything. Not for Marin's sake. I do not know. The last shot we kind of get, I don't know if it's the exact last shot, but there's one that just stands out. He kisses Rachel. Or is it Sarah? Which one is it? Write her. Rachel in this one, it's Sarah in beginning. Yes. Write me. And he he kisses her on the cheek. It's nothing like sexual or whatever, but it's supposed to be tender. 
They do kiss in the uh, church, but that's all because the devil is making yeah. her do it. And then he turns around and he goes to leave, even though she doesn't want him to. And he walks out the door and it's bright and and it's there's dirt and sand everywhere. And the door perfectly frames him with the darkness from inside as he's sort of like staggering away. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is John Wayne in The Searchers at the end of The Searchers when he walks away and he's framed by the doorway. And like that. They're just replicating that exact shot. I just couldn't believe that they covered him up with smoke. And that's how they ended it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All the smoke smoke came in and enveloped him. And you're just Uh like, what just happened? (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. It's weird. That was an end of a movie, I guess. Mm Mm-hmm. He's walking out into the desert. He doesn't have... Yeah, he's not going to go out into the desert for 40 (laughs) days and 40 nights or anything. No, he's going to... Go get a car. (laughs) Yeah. And fly out of here. Like... I don't know. It seemed weird, especially since he was walking kind of like John Wayne. It was very strange. Uh-huh. But that's it. Yeah, that's that's kind of all we have to say about this movie. I would argue that this isn't saying a lot because the goods are good and the and the bads are bad. It's not as good as the original or part 3, but it's better than part 2 and the beginning. So of like the core, yeah, that's exactly my point. The beginning and part two are terrible. <laughs> and one and three are good Very to great. Good. Yeah. So like, yeah, it isn't saying a lot. It is kind of right there in the middle, but it's absolutely, I think, at least better than the beginning. And I'm really bummed that that I didn't get to see it first. It was released second. So a lot of people didn't get to see it first. But this is the version between the two that Blatty prefers. He likes this one. So, Kelsey, with that in mind, what do you think the movie has on Rotten Tomatoes? I think I know. Okay. Does it have a 30? It does have a 30. Yeah. While director Schrader's attempt at a literate internal exposition on evil temptations and human sin is admirable, this prequel suffers from hit and miss, psychological tension, poor visual effects, and weak writing. An overambitious failure of a horror movie. Wow. Real harsh tie. <laughs> a Metacritic of 55. Exorcist the Beginning had a 10. You gave it a 15. I gave it a 30. Do you think 30 Rotten Tomatoes, 55 Metacritic, do you think that's overrated or underrated? Maybe just slightly underrated. What would you give it? Give it a 35. I'm going to give this one a 48. Doesn't quite meet that 50, (laughs) but it's definitely better than the beginning was. Yes. The Rennie Harlan version. But ultimately, that might make me feel better about it. But if I was to look at it in isolation, there's a lot wrong with it. There's a lot that's unimpressive. But to call it a failure is weird. (laughs) I wouldn't call it a failure. (laughs) So that is Dominion, prequel to The Exorcist, and thus wraps up all the Exorcist movies. There are other movies with exorcism and exorcist in the title, but this is the core franchise. Yes. Until they release the sequel. Yes. Sometime soon. Mm Mm-hmm. What are we watching next week, Kelsey? Next week, we're going to watch a double feature. Yeah. We've not watched a double feature in a long time. Uh Uh-huh. We are going to watch the original 1933 version of King Kong. 
Uh-huh. And the 2017 Kong Skull Island. We're skipping all the other ones in between. Yeah, so like 85 years between these movies. Yes. It's going to be interesting. Mm-hmm. So we can, like, we we had a desire to get through, like, some of some classic horror movies, and King Kong is one of them. Plus, Godzilla vs. King Kong is out right now. Plus, Kong Skull Island is very good. Yeah, I really liked it. It's action-packed and fun, but terrifying in some other ways. So, <laughs> the Skull Walkers or whatever. <laughs> anyway, I'm excited for both. I've seen both of them already, but it's been a while since I've seen King Kong, the 33 version. I've seen both as well. I'm excited. So that is next week. Until then, you can always find us on our website, podcemetery.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at PodCemetery and subscribe to us in your podcatcher of choice. Rating and reviewing us there is a huge help. A five-star written review is the best help you can give us there. But even better than that is sharing us with your friends. And even better than that is listening in the GD first place. Thank you all very, very much. We love each and every one of you. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. But before we go, Kelsey, any last words? Jesus loves you. Everyone else thinks you're an asshole. I don't want to be buried in a pet cemetery. I don't want to live my life again. I don't want to be buried in a pet To the sacred place To see the dream I can't escape Jesus loves you Everyone else thinks you're an asshole It's a bummer that we didn't talk about how that's in this movie And now it's on like bumper stickers And people put it in memes and stuff like that And have no idea that it's from Exorcist 3 I wonder if it's from anything before that Says he knows how it's been all these years, sir